24th. She's bringing jazz to Birdsland Jazz, 4318 Martin Luther King Drive, 8 o'clock to 11, donation-based. And if you can go to the website at www.birdlandjazz.org to get more information on the guests that will be there with her. It's a community jazz event, and they're hoping that folks come out to show the club that you do love jazz. On today's show, we're going to be featuring a film by Alexander Lee. He's an independent filmmaker and civil rights lawyer based in Oakland, California. His new short film, Al Camino, is currently in post-production and tells the story of Jorge, a typical American teenager whose father dies in prison. He and his mother, Gabrielle, must race against time to prevent the unwanted cremation of Jorge's father's body. Al Camino, Al Camino was inspired by Alex's work as a staff attorney at Justice Now, a legal nonprofit in Oakland where he represented people in prison who were dying. I'd like to introduce you now, our second guest as a part of this project. Her name is Nora Wilson. Nora is a director of legal advocacy at Justice Now, a human rights law office in Oakland, only law office in the state specializing in compassionate release. Nora is an attorney and prison abolitionist working in solidarity with people in California women's prisons. As she begins to explain what the project is about, to give you more information, uh, after a while the phone lines will be open if you have any questions for Nora and Alexander Lee. We will also have clips from his film, and that number I'll give it to you now and again, so the phone lines in about 10 minutes will be open. The number to call locally, 510 510- Eight four eight four four two five. If you're outside the five one zero area code, the net number is eight hundred nine five eight nine zero zero eight. And so, I'd like to welcome Nora first to talk about the legal services she provides, the prison system, and things that we don't know about and that we should know. Thank you, Nora, for being a part of this experience. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Absolutely. So tell us about the a project that you do, what, what brought you there, and what's happening. Sure. Um, I can talk about what brought me to the work of yes. prison abolition. Um, as a child, I had a close family member in and out of the prison system. I grew up in Georgia. I watched my mom as a kid advocating for our family member. I watched her uh, one day spend six hours on the phone to the governor's office, and she got things done. Um, so that was my earliest memory of thinking about the impacts of the prison system. Um, I went to law school later. I knew that I wanted to provide the tools of the legal profession to communities that didn't usually have that access. And I had a really sort of life-changing experience at an organization in New York City, National Advocates for Pregnant Women, where I was working with pregnant and parenting women who were being prosecuted for using drugs during pregnancy. The state's idea of a solution was to jail the women and force them to give birth inside the jails. Um, That was work that opened my eyes to the reality that as an attorney, I could work to try to protect people from the system rather being a part of an oppressive system. Um, I came to Justice Now after graduating from law school, and we're the only law office in the state of California specializing in compassionate release, um, which Alex's film speaks to. And we work, um, as you said, in solidarity with people in prisons in California. How long have this organization been out here? 
This is actually our 15th year anniversary in 2015. So we were founded in 2000, and um, that's actually right around the time that the Compassionate Release Law was enacted in um, 1998. So we've been specializing in those services um, since our inception. And what has been the impact on the families, which is what Alex's film actually speaks to, actually taking a character. And Alex, actually, this is real life. You took it as close as possible to the cases that you defended and worked for. Yes, that's right. And gentlemen, thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Nora can talk more about, and I hope she will, talk about the actual real-life cases that Justice okay. Now is working on. But yes, when I was a staff attorney back when I was a baby attorney back in 2006, I worked at Justice Now for about a year. Um, prior to that, I had also been an intern for this organization, and they're very wonderful to law student interns, so I highly recommend that to anyone out there who's thinking about that. Um, and I got to g know several people and several sets of families whose loved ones were dying in prison um, or were already in some sort of vegetative state in prison. So the compassionate release, the law, allows for people who fall into those categories, and again, Nora can re refine those categories a little bit more, um, to ask for an early release from prison, so earlier than their sentence would allow for. Um, so we were. That's that was the job that I had at that time as the staff attorney was to represent these people in um, court to ask for those sentences to be reduced so they could get out and die with dignity at home and at the same time save the state of California millions of dollars. Um, in fact, the compassionate release case law and laws around it, why we have it, and if you look at this, you know, the history of the law, it does in, in, include a lot of it, a lot about how it saves the state money, how it's good prison policy, it's good social policy. Um, but from the family perspective and the real impact on people, you cannot, you know, overemphasize how important it is if someone is dying. I mean, Matt, dying outside of prison is difficult. It's never a pleasant experience for people, obviously. Um, and it's extremely, you know, heart-rending. I mean, if you're in prison, you have then this intermediary um, system of the, uh, the prison system that specializes in dehumanizing people. So you can imagine having that presence in the middle of your grieving process and in the middle of your trying to adjust to the fact that you're a loved one. And in the case of my film, it's actually the father of the main character. He's died. And now his, him and his mother, and he's, you know, a minor, he's only 16 or 17 in the movie, in the film, they had together have to overcome their own, the typical sort of teenage um, disagreement and miscommunication that's also influenced by the father being so absent um, because he's been in prison, have to deal with all of that to get the father's body out of the prison system and into their, back, back into, under their control so that they can give him a proper burial. And one of the things about compassionate release is that when it doesn't happen, when the court system isn't fast enough to react, and someone does indeed pass away behind the, behind prison walls, there's a whole process that happens to that person's remains. And again, even after death, and this is what really struck me when I was working at Justice Now, because we did have clients who, who didn't make it, who passed away before courts could decide, um, even in death, the prison system maintains complete control over the person's remains. Um, and there's a level of a bureaucratic nightmare that someone, the, uh, family members have to go through to recover those remains. Oftentimes, um, p people pass away in prison and their loved ones aren't even told until after the fact that's happened. And Nora, I'm sure, has many stories that kind of go into this, uh, um, go into that part, a very shady and unfortunate part about death and dying in California prisons. So let's go. Let's Nora. Let's talk about the the put human face on that because we, I think in our experience when we when we use the word prisons, families, prisons, people hear prisons and you don't actually f hear family within that. What has been some of the impact of the families who 
are trying to struggle to bring home, as Alex said, someone that they love to be able to go through that dying process. One of the most powerful things to me in um, working directly with people and their families who are most impacted um, by the prison system and and by dying in prison, um, one of the things that just strikes me is how uh, families and outside advocates are so invested and in bringing their family member home to try to um, help their family member become better, to um, ease their passage um, in the um, inevitable event that they're, they're going to die very quickly. And so families are actually quite motivated um, to, they're always asking questions about um, how do I get this person better medical care? Um, because one of the things that the prison system does is actually deny people access to medical care just on a regular basis. They're not a health care provider. They shouldn't be confused with one. So a lot of family members are trying to get their family members home to actually survive. And the compassionate release process Um, was initially intended to allow people um, in prison uh, who were living with HIV to come home and actually get treatment rather than being locked away in a supposed skilled nursing facility or hospice to die. Um, Ninety percent or more than that, actually, of the people I've worked with in prison who are eligible for compassionate release, they have family on the outside that want them home, that want them um, as healthy as possible. And um, if they know that their family member has a terminal terminal illness. They want to be around their family member to support them. They don't want them to die um, in a cold cell alone. Um, So it is a a tremendous struggle of family members um, constantly trying to make sure that their loved one's basic needs are met. So you're saying that before this work 15 years ago, a person that was terminally ill could be left in their cell and just without medications? without services? Right, and even now, in order to get into a prison hospice, which is just the concept of having a hospice. So they do have prison hospice. Exactly, in um, many, many prisons, skilled nursing facilities, hospices, yeah, people are sort of left to die. And even current day, uh, often people are forced to sign do not resuscitate orders in order to qualify for hospice care. Um, They have to completely let go of any possibility of treatment. Um, They're there to die, and they're... What's the what's the biggest fear of releasing them to die? So if someone is terminally ill, they have th- three months to live. What's the biggest fear that they're going to get out and just a fresh air is going to rejuvenate them? Right, just sort of like get them going again to something that may um, support them in criminal behavior. Right, a lot of. Uh- to be honest, the biggest fear, I think, is a political fear on the part of judges um, who do not want to be perceived as anything but tough on crime. Um, there isn't actually, I think, any rational fear that we can assign to um, releasing someone who is terminally ill, who's in a vegetative state, like Alex spoke to, and who has already been through um, an elaborate process um, to be vetted to see whether that person poses a threat to public safety. Um, so these are people who are dying, are in vegetative state, require assistance 24 hours with just the most basic needs. And they've already, um, they've, their case has already been looked at to see whether they would be a threat to public safety. So mm-hmm. uh, there's agreement on all sides that, you know, a person would not pose a threat. And yet I, I see again and again their cases get before judges who um, lack the political courage to do the right thing. So let's put a face on this here with your film and listen to a clip out of the film which would show the character Jorge, 
who is 16 years old, yeah. being 16, mm-hmm. and all the goals of being 16, the right. changes we go through, and now burdened with the the pain and the decision-making mm-hmm. of trying to help his mom decide because the, the, the father's passed away already. Yeah, help them, helping his mother figure out how, how to get the body back. All right, let's listen to a film clip. Is this Esa chica, te dije que ya no hablaras con ella, Jorge. Estabas bien antes de que empezaras a desperdiciar tanto tiempo con ella. Fine, mom. If you don't want me to be president, I won't have any, okay? I'll end up just like you, old and alone. Oye, ¿cómo me puedes decir eso a mí? Ellos no son tus amigos. Te hacen falta la escuela y fumar esa marihuana. They, they make me miss school. You're the one that pulled me out of school today, remember? Sí, pero esto es diferente. Es importante. Ocupo tu ayuda con esto. That was a clip from Alexander Lee's a new film that's in prose production, Al Camino, a clip from that. And you're listening to Alexander Lee here on Javelin's Bistro and Nora Wilson. And we're talking about the families in prison, uh, Lee's new film, who addresses some of the issues in regards to dying in prison and uh, the cremation of body. Tell us what so we were... died really far away yeah. Tell us, tell us about that. What we were listening to. Sure. So, as you noticed, the film is actually bilingual. It's about a little less than fifty percent in Spanish, um, and this is again trying to reflect the you know the large portion of the Latino population in the in the United States is being targeted by the prison industrial complex. Um, so they're basically having an argument that is you know the typical uh, teenage son mother argument about girls and school and missing school um, but the, they're in a car in that scene and they're traveling up I-5 very quickly trying to get to um, the city of Fresno where the father's body, where Diego this is this Jorge's father, um, is basically uh, being um, held imprisoned, so to speak, by a funeral home. And so the tension is there. Like there, a conversation that otherwise wouldn't lead to that level of explosive uh, reaction from Jorge uh, just pushes him over the edge because he's under, uh, and both of them are under a lot of stress because they are dealing with a situation that they don't quite understand and are not necessarily legally empowered. You know, they're not lawyers, they're not judges, they don't, they can't just walk into the funeral home and demand the body. They have to go and actually essentially plead um, for them, for the this funeral home, which is contracted by the state, to do these cremations to forego their procedures and let go of the, uh, whatever money they're getting paid for. Or, um, just go, basically deviate from the norm, and that's something that to get a prison bureaucracy to do is kind of a lot of a uh, lot of work. It's a heavy work, and I do think that for the sake of compassion, you know, it's you need to do stuff like that. Um, and so that scene is about um, the underlying under, you know, the undercurrent of what the imprisonment of Diego has done to that family. And what happens inside? I can't. You know, I, know, I don't want to. <laughs> give away but the whole thing. tell us a couple other things that might that the film may address. That mm-hmm. um, the other, like the people inside this film. We we have Jorge. We have his mm-hmm, mother. Mm-hmm. We have his deceased father. Yes. Yeah, so one complicating factor, which comes up when they're actually at the funeral home trying to advocate for the return of his body, is that they're the parents, Diego and Gabriela, are both undocumented. So 
part of the issue that they run into is that they don't have the proper identification that, um, again, a government process requires. So it's it's a battle against bureaucracy, and a lot of what these families have to put up with is bureaucracy. Again, this is not necessarily sort of evil intent. This isn't people standing around thinking, how can we torture people as much as possible? There might be some people who do that, but that's not the norm. Um, it's really kind of our best intentions, uh, the sort of thoughtlessness of bureaucracy, the missing the human side of what it means to warehouse millions and millions of people in these locked facilities, um, and how that produces a kind of um, callousness um, and cruelty, a casual cruelty. Um, and so that bureaucracy that they're wrestling with is something that many, many, many people, and then there are 7 million, according to Project What, which is an organization in Oakland that we're, my production company partnered with, my production company is called Light Show Pictures. We partnered with them and we actually, they're a youth group essentially. They help and support young people whose parents are in prison or in jail. And according to them, 7 million young people in this country have a parent that's involved in the criminal justice system in some way. That's at least, you know, one to two children in every classroom in this country, if you even it out that way. It's clearly it's not distributed exactly the same because of social inequity. Um, but it's a lot. It's impacting a lot of families um, and a lot of children. So how does the youth in the project mm-hmm. help other youth that are invo- whose family members are involved inside the prison system? Yeah, so Project What, um, like the students or the youth who are part of that group, they were actually on our production team. So they, they were behind the camera with us. Um, helping us with different tax, tasks behind, you know, behind the scenes. Um, and so that was, you know, deliberate, like wanting to pull them into learning how to fill, learning some filmmaking skills, being part of a filmmaking community, um, figuring out how to amplify their voices using this art form. Um, you know, that's the ultimate intent is that people like me who are sort of advocates don't do this anymore. Instead, you have people who are directly impacted or who have directly experienced what is in the story to write their own stories and produce their own films. Uh, Project What also does a lot of educational work. So they go around and do public speaking events. They do speakers bureaus. Um, you can go to their website. The community, their um, the organization they're sponsored under is called um, Community Works. Um, and you can look them up under there. They're, they're a nationally recognized organization. They're really wonderful. So, Nora, this question is actually it's for both of you. As now, Alex, first of all, do you still work as an attorney? I'm not currently actively practicing. Okay, but this still is an attorney question because we're talking about the uh, bureaucracy, 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 bureaucracy. bureaucracy. <laughs> yeah, I'm so detested that I can't even say it. <laughs> So how do you get through that paperwork just as human beings? I mean, how do you cut through that to make things happen? Um, One of the uh, most uh, amazing and untapped resources, I think, in this work is um, sharing out tools and resources to to families and people most impacted so that we're not taking on all the work ourselves and pretending that there is some hierarchy where um, attorneys need to be depended on um, to navigate systems. Um, That's one of the main goals of Justice Now, actually doing solidarity work with families so that they not only have us on their side, um, giving them sort of the history of the law and resources and explaining the incredibly elaborate process and barriers, but they also have the tools themselves to make sure that they can present um, parts of the case that can actually strengthen someone's case to come home. And where does where do they present represent the case? Present the case where? What what avenues? What buildings? What floors? Doors? They so there are several decision makers. Um, first, you have to convince doctors at the prison that your family member is sick enough, and so that just 
is a matter of the squeaky wheel, I think, getting the grease and just constantly staying on the doctors, which, of course, there are elaborate barriers to even talk to a person's doctor. Um, then you have to convince the undersecretary of the Department of Corrections in Sacramento. We encourage family members to always write letters talking about what it would mean for them to have their family members home. Um, letters that make me cry every time um, there are you know grandchildren out there mothers sisters daughters um, writing about what it would mean to have their loved one home to die with dignity um, people can also come with their families up before the board of parole hearings they have a monthly meeting where they hear compassionate release cases and then finally there's the sentencing court um, where people can come and, and present what it would mean to them and also present all the plans that they've made to make sure that their loved one will be safe at home will receive the care that they need at the end of their life now, I don't know if this is an appropriate question or not, but what are some of the crimes that the people have been charged with? And I'm asking that question mm-hmm. because, I, yeah, I'm, I'm mm-hmm. just going to ask it first and see. Mm-hmm. Sure. It, it ranges widely. There was one person a couple of years ago we worked with who was inside for um, petty theft as as a part of three strikes. So um, stole some batteries and was inside for 16 years and had um, stage four terminal cancer. Um, A lot of times, though, we do work with folks who are inside um, for violent harms because um, a lot of our clients are folks who are older, who've been in the prison system longer, who've suffered at the hands of state violence for longer and been denied medical care that they needed, which has brought them to the state that they're in. So it ranges widely. I had a feeling it would be all the range from something petty to whatever mm-hmm. extreme that we imagine in our imagination what, what crime is. But I had a feeling there was a, a lot of uh, people in there for things that don't, that um, doesn't make necessary sense anyway. Well, they're, yeah, they're not sentenced to, most of them are not sentenced to life in prison. Like, they're not supposed to die. I mean, they were originally given the sentence that wasn't contemplated as happening. That's a good point. That's a good point. And so how long have you been working on the film? Um, let's see. Well, the experience happened in 2006, gestating in my brain for a while. Um, I wrote it, the script in 2013. That's right. Um, or actually, no, early, about a year ago. So early 2014. Uh, we shot most of it in September. Um, it was a fairly grueling shoot. We actually were in Vacaville, which ironically houses um so we chose vacaville because of its surroundings we wanted it to look like central central valley california but it's also the city where we have um, a prison hospital called california medical facility which actually has quite a few people who are um, compassionate release candidates or will be one day um and i had a crew of about 30 people um wonderful amazing skilled people i had some fantastic actors um and um we now have our internet movie database websites. <laughs> Pages are all up. So um, if you go to um, look it up, um, again, it's called El Camino. And our website is uh, facebook.com slash El Camino the film. And my production company, lightshowpictures.com. And you can see all that stuff there. Um, yeah. And uh, there's still some work to be done on it. We still have post-production. I'm editing. I have a wonderful editor working with me. And we have some sound stuff we need to fix. So, you know, if anybody wants to visit our websites and kick in a few dollars, I would very much appreciate that to help cover all of those costs. And we have a second clip from the film. What is that? What is it? And what are we going to be listening uh, to? So I actually don't remember. Okay. <laughs> the second clip is well, let's, so let's listen to it. it and you can yes. tell us what's okay. going on. Did David die in Iraq? Afghanistan. IED. So he died really far away from you, too. 
Did you get a chance to say goodbye? nothing left to bury that was a clip from Alexander Lee's film uh, you're listening to Jalvin's Bistro on cover to cover uh, tell us about that sure it's very so, compelling yeah that's our third principal actor her name is so uh, the people speaking so I okay so the Jorge the protagonist is played by a great wonderful young actor named Vince Anthony who has gonna have big things in front of him um, and then the person he's talking to is um, the character's name is um, Greta, and she's played by Carrie Wishingrad, who's another local actress. Uh, Carrie, uh, Carrie uh, Greta is the gatekeeper in this story. She's the one representing and works for the funeral home. She's based on real people <laughs> um, who act in this capacity on behalf of the prison, uh, this, the the government, and also the prison system. And so he is at this very pivotal moment trying his best. Uh, to figure out what sort of buttons, what kind of arguments, what things can he say to convince her to find it in her heart to go off script and let them have his body back, the body of his father back. Mm, it was very compelling to, to listen to that as well. Nora, tell us some of the um, stories uh, about the, some of the prisoners who have, upon finding out that they are going home, that their families have advocate, advocated for them, and that they're going home to let go in love, in a loving surrounding. Um, yeah, it's um, yeah one of the best and most powerful parts of our job, and it, and it happens so rarely. Um, last year we had um, five cases where people were actually able to come home to their family, and some years just statewide there are four or, or less than that. Um, so it is always a very rare and special occasion. And um, Alex mentioned one particular prison, California medical facility, where we actually have a good relationship with the chaplain there who will let people come into his office and take phone calls that aren't just, you know, collect calls that they make home. Um, and to be able to tell someone over the phone that um, you're going home, the court order says 48 hours. Um, you know, what do you need? How are you feeling? And just to hear, you know, the silence on the end and then, you know, the, the crying or the laughter or the mixture, um, it, it just never gets old. Mm -hmm. So this journey started with you years ago with your mom on the phone for six hours talking to the, a warden about a family member and followed you into making careers in your life. So that you can also advocate for others that you, without knowing their names, before you started this journey. How has the laws changed in the 15 years that this firm, this group has been together advocating for families? How has it impacted the laws? Uh, the laws, let's see, compassionate release has actually been expanded mm -hmm. um, in the last 15 years when it started out in 1998. Um, Compassionate release was for people who are terminally ill with six months or less to live. Um, in about 2008, a new law was adopted to say that it also applied to people who, again, like Alex was mentioning, are in a vegetative state. People who are permanently incapacitated by a medical condition and need 24-hour care. Um, and so the laws have actually um, broadened. And also due to um, federal court orders um, in the Plata case, some people may know of where um, federal courts said, that 
prison health care or the lack thereof rises to the level of cruel and unusual punishment. There have been all sorts of mandates from federal courts for the Department of Corrections to let more people go home and specifically expand medical releases. Um, at the same time, I think that also it's, it's getting harder on a, um, as a practical matter for people to go home um, when a process like release from prison is controlled by the prison system. The prison system wants to grow. It doesn't want to shrink itself. And um, politics are the order of the day. Um, prisons hide processes from family members and from people inside. They don't know how to access them. Um, when you're dying in prison, it's difficult to do anything, let alone run a legal case. So it has been, it might outwardly look as though more people might be coming home, but um, we need a drastic change. You know, the prison, system, prison population is aging. That's something that is well documented. We have a, you know, boomer population in there that's hitting, just like out here, just is uh, hitting critical age. So this is going to come up more and more. So if this state and uh, other states in this country don't come up with some kind of plan, we're going to, you know, there's going to be a lot of sick people and a lot of money getting flushed down the toilet in that direction. I want to thank my guests today, Nor and Alexander Lee and his film, El Camino, coming out that talks about the prison system and dying and being sick in the prison system. Thank you for participating in today's show. Any questions that they have, they can get hold of you. Yeah, go to my website, again, facebook.com slash El Camino, the film, or lightshowpictures, all one word, dot com. And we'll go out with Tree Lens Music. Um, I'll see you soon. Javelin's Bistro, cover to cover. Thank you. Attention KPFA listeners. We have a strong bond with you. Our promises made 65 years ago. A sacred pledge between us. I'm here to assure you that your community-powered radio station will keep up our end of the bargain, and we will continue to bring you the voices of the powerless and the progressives. During our last fun drive, we brought you live daily protests from East Bay streets, including real-time and studio analysis and discussions from the leaders of Black Lives Matter and I Can't Breathe movements. You've heard Professors John A. Powell, Michelle Alexander, 